Hello, I'm Dr Roger Henderson and I'm a GP in Southwest Scotland and I also co-host the GP Notebook study groups. Welcome to this GP Notebook podcast where we discuss bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can find us on all major podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So do please follow us to receive notifications about new episodes and if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review to help other listeners find us. You can also follow us on Twitter at GP Notebook for more information about new podcast episodes and study groups, and you can follow me there too, at Roger the Doctor. Finally, you can visit gpnotebook.com for podcast episode show notes and to find out more about upcoming study group meetings. Now, in this episode, I'll be discussing Lyme disease is an infection caused by a number of bacteria belonging to the Borrelia genus, including Borrelia burgdorferi. Now, these are spirochetes with many similarities to syphilis, and different strains can cause different clinical presentations. The name comes from the town of Lyme in Connecticut, where a group of patients with the disease was investigated in the 1970s. Fundamentally, it's an infectious disease transmitted to humans through the bites of infected ticks. Now, in April 2018, NICE published their guidelines NG95 on Lyme disease, as there were no UK guidelines covering primary and secondary care on this condition up to that point. Now, this guideline aims to improve the early diagnosis and uptake of the condition and ensure correct treatment with the appropriate antibiotic. Now, there can be significantly different classifications of Lyme disease globally, and because these can sometimes be fairly hotly contested, NICE concentrated on the diagnosis and management according to symptoms rather than a strict classification approach. Public health data shows that the incidence of Lyme disease has been on the rise in England and Wales in recent years, but appears to be decreasing slightly since COVID-19, possibly due to its impact on human behaviour, diagnostics and health-seeking behaviour. But if I'm honest, the exact reasons do remain unclear. Surprisingly to some people, Lyme disease is not a notifiable disease in the UK. But since October 2010, under the health protection regulations from then, every microbiology laboratory, including those in the private sector in England, is required to notify all laboratory diagnoses of Lyme disease to the UK Health Security Agency. Now, this means case numbers may in fact be an underestimate, with the diagnoses being made on clinical grounds alone not being included. Overall, though, I think it's safe to say the condition remains relatively rare. Cases often peak in the summer months, and they do seem to mainly affect two age groups, with men and women being affected equally. Those groups are from about 10 to 19 and 50 to 59. Now, the symptoms of Lyme disease depend on the stage of the disease, and there's no question that some people are completely asymptomatic if they have it. The usual classification of Lyme disease is early, stage 1 or localised, stage 2 or disseminated, and stage 3 or late. 
Now, in early or stage 1 disease, the classical presentation is the rash erythema migrans, and this may be the only presenting feature. Found in up to about 80% of affected people in Europe, this has the characteristic appearance that we sometimes see of a circular rash that radiates from the bite within 3 to 36 days of being bitten. It's typically round or oval and is a bit pinkish in appearance in my experience. It is not usually itchy, hot or painful, but it can have a really classical target or bullseye appearance of central erythema with sparing around it and a diameter greater than 5 centimeters. That then gradually resolves and there may also be associated non-specific flu-like symptoms as well as sometimes a little bit of brain fog or fatigue. If we move to stage 2 or disseminated Lyme disease this can occur days to months after being bitten following dissemination of infection, resulting in multiple lesions, usually smaller than 5 centimetres in diameter. But even at this stage, this is still considered a relatively early infection. You may get a flu-like illness, although that's slightly more common in America than in the UK, and you may also get neurological problems such as facial nerve palsies, mild encephalitis, or even in rare cases, meningitis. In stage 3, or late disease, the manifestations can be more significant, including arthritis of the larger joints, pericarditis, uveitis, vertigo, and symptoms similar to fibromyalgia, or even chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, this has sometimes been called post-Lyme syndrome, although this does remain a point of considerable debate, both medically and amongst the public. If you're considering an erythema migrans rash, I'm afraid there is a long list of possible differential diagnoses, almost too long to list, but I think the ones that are worth considering are things like erythema multiforme, granuloma annulare, numular eczema, tinea, good old-fashioned ringworm, urticaria, or discoid eczema. And it's typically the clinical area of making this firm diagnosis that often presents us with the greatest challenge. Now, because of this, NICE did then publish quality standard guidance that contains three key benchmarks relating to diagnosis and treatment. 1. Any patient with erythema migrans should be diagnosed with and treated for Lyme disease without laboratory testing. 2. Patients who are suspected to have Lyme disease but who don't have erythema migrans and who have a negative enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay or ELISA test within four weeks of developing symptoms should have this test repeated four to six weeks later because of the possibility of an initial false negative test result. And 3. Initial treatment should be with antibiotics with the dose, duration and type determined by symptoms. In adults and children aged over 12, give doxycycline 100 mg twice daily for 21 days. You can give 200 mg once a day if you want as well. And amoxicillin 1000 mg three times TDS for 21 days if doxycycline isn't suitable. 
And if you have a patient who can't take either doxycycline or amoxicillin, then you can use azithromycin, 500 milligrams a day for 17 days. Now, important point to mention, it can be forgotten that a Jarish-Herxheimer reaction can develop in up to 15% of people in the first 24 hours of treatment with any antibiotic for Lyme disease. And this is a systemic reaction thought to be caused by the release of cytokines when antibiotics kill large numbers of bacteria. Fortunately for us, this reaction is self-limiting and typically resolves within 24 to 48 hours. And provided the symptoms aren't severe and there's no evidence of a significantly allergic reaction, then the person should be advised to continue the antibiotic. If Lyme disease is suspected in people without erythema migrans, migrans then offer the patient an ELISA test for Lyme disease. And if you feel there's a high clinical suspicion of Lyme disease or you're confident in the diagnosis, then consider starting antibiotics while waiting for the results. If you've got a positive or equivocal ELISA test in people without erythema migrans, then you can perform an immunoblot test for Lyme disease. If that's negative and the person still has symptoms, then review their history and symptoms and consider an alternative diagnosis. If you've got a patient tested within four weeks from the onset of their symptoms and you still suspect Lyme disease, repeat the ELISA test four to six weeks after their first ELISA test. Now, always be cautious about diagnosing Lyme disease in people without a supportive history or positive serological testing because of the risk of missing an alternative diagnosis or providing inappropriate treatment. Fortunately, if patients are diagnosed and treated properly with recommended antibiotic therapy, Lyme disease is usually curable and rarely fatal. Although unfortunately, we don't have any test of cure at present and there's certainly no vaccine against it at present. A small proportion of patients do report subjective symptoms going on for many months after appropriate antibiotic therapy without any evidence of ongoing infection. But studies have failed to show that these symptoms are in excess of what is expected in non-infected patients, although reinfection can occur in patients who have a repeat tick bite. Now, be that as it may, I think we all know there are a number of patients with symptoms they attribute to the long-term effects of Lyme disease and who may benefit from the advice of an infectious disease specialist. Public Health England guidance currently advises that anyone who has had a positive Lyme test in a non-NHS laboratory setting should have it repeated in an NHS one, which to my mind at least does suggest there's a certain lack of confidence in some of the commercially available tests currently on the market. What about advising our patients about avoiding tick bites? Well, remind them that the most effective strategies include wearing protective clothing, such as long trousers and long sleeve shirt. Using tick repellents containing DEET or PMD and telling them to keep to paths and away from long grass or overgrown vegetation because ticks crawl up long grass in their search for a feed and to ask them to shower or bathe after returning from a tick infested area and that does help to reduce risk as well. 
skin should be checked periodically for attached ticks. And if they are present, then remove them with tweezers or fine-pointed forceps. You grasp the tick as closely as possible to the skin, you pull gently upwards, and you try not to break off the mouth parts while you're doing so. If you're checking for ticks, advise you should pay particular attention to skin folds, as ticks do tend to seek out more humid areas for attachment. Also check the head area, including the scalp and hairline of young children, because tick bites are relatively more common at these sites in this age group. So, that's an overview of Lyme disease, and I do hope you found the podcast helpful. Please do have a look at the show notes that accompany this episode at gpnotebook.com, and we'd be very grateful if you consider following the podcast and leaving us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Do feel free to get in touch via social media at GP Notebook or email us at support at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments, or even ideas for future podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You should also visit us at gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and download free resources and shortcuts to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. So, thank you for listening, and until the next time, goodbye. (laughs) 